only one person in Kilmarnock FC's 150-year history has been the top scorer for the league champions, Ronnie Hamilton. The club's youngest ever player, Ronnie made an instant impact, scoring on his debut as a 16-year-old. Part of the golden era of the club, his 15 goals in 1964-65 were crucial in finally securing the long-elusive championship after coming close so many times. For Ronnie's big match, he reflects on the best team performance he ever witnessed as either player or supporter. The night when Celtic were 5-0 down after less than an hour. A massive match en route to the ultimate achievement. I'm Gordon Gillen, and this is Ronnie Hamilton's Big Match. Kilmarnock's 1964-65 season got off to a terrific start, with six wins in the first seven matches, including six goals for the newly installed first-choice striker Ronnie Hamilton. In the run-up to the October meeting with Celtic, however, significant news rocked the club. Lloyd announced to the press just before the games had started that he was resigning at the end of the year. It seemed an odd thing to do, quite a lot of games to go, but maybe in retrospect it was a good thing to do. An announcement of such a stature. I think after after that announcement, we went out that night determined to do something for the manager to thank him or to show that we were, we were going to win the league. I mean, that, that night, that, in my opinion, that, that's the best display of Kilmarnock team has ever made in all my time at Kilmarnock, and all the time I've been watching. I don't remember a game where Kilmarnock dominated games so effectively. And, and demolished what was, in essence, a very good Celtic team. About a year or so later, these guys were winning the, the Scottish League, the Scottish Cup, into Europe and winning the European Cup. It was a bloody good Celtic team. But we, we murdered them that night. So after that game, I, I felt, and I think probably the rest of the team felt, this could be here. You know, this could be here. Because if, if you can demolish a team with the quality of Celtic, 5-2, and in that game, that 5-2 victory, it was 5-0 lead at one stage. It was after, after about 55 or 60 minutes, it was 5-0. Uh, General Fudgeon popped in two second half headers, guide to the 3 nothing half time lead. 5-0 in Croson, we were just well, unbelievable that night. Cleaning our skins. I don't know whether it was the cups of tea we got, maybe there was something in the tea that night. Uh, no, it was, a, it was a pretty good night. It is a great feeling. Even looking back now, I still remember it with great fondness. We all played great that night. We were terrific. I don't think I've ever played a better game than the Kilmarnock that night. You just felt as if you were floating, as if you couldn't be caught with people. <laughs> there are some deep games that you play in any sport, be it golf or football, and you know that it's going to be your night. You've got some strange feeling inside that you can't do any wrong. And not even Kilmarnock fans could start getting anxious at the two goals being pulled back. No, as a Kilmarnock supporter, that's what I've tended to find over the years. I always games that I've been playing. I think every time the opposition get into the heart, I think they're going to score a goal. 
ויהיו את הארון גורמי, ובטח הם הסיגו עם דרור מים, ‫בדיוק את מנהיגים של עשרה ילדות ‫כאילו. The Kilmarnock of the 1960s faced up to some of Europe's greatest teams, with Ronnie Hamilton a key player in many famous cup ties, including the five-goal comeback against Eintracht Frankfurt in 1964. Were European games, what was the significance of them to you? so big at the time and I can think of it. There were floodlight games for a start usually. They were always maybe played late August, September, October, November. The quality of the teams were playing. I think that one of the first years I was involved at Kilmarnock, the Moscow Torpedo, the, the famous Russian side, came in a tour of uh, Scotland and they played Rangers, Hearts and Kilmarnock, I think. They beat Rangers something like six, nothing, a six one at Ibrook. They came to Rugby Park and we beat them of course. It was at 4-2, four, 4-3. Four, four, Wonderful game. But yeah, these games are very successful. Floodlight, and I think a floodlight game adds to the kind of spectacle of a game. Somehow feel you want to put a wee bit more into the game. I don't know why, but it, it just seems to raise the expectations of what you're needing to do. And then some of the other games that we played in, of course, there was the Eintracht game, the famous game. They came with a fabulous reputation. They played in that marvellous final at Hamden against Real Madrid. So you only thought about a year or so after, about a year and a half, they come to Rugby Park and we're in the same park playing a game against them. And you wonder, this is as good as it gets. I mean, you're playing against guys who are worldwide known. So again, that's a special atmosphere. Then the other games, Real Madrid, I mean, it was, a, it was wonderful. You're playing this big team in the world at Rugby Park and it, it, it just... If you told somebody these stories, they wouldn't really quite believe them. And the fact that we performed so well in the, in the game too, as I say, I think, I think you're geared up for it more, you're, you're more aware of what's at stake, you maybe just put that wee bit extra 5% into your effort. We played everything. We were a fabulous team. I think Alec Young here and Brian Laboon, they won the English League, I think, quite a number of times down south over these years. Every team you play seemed to have something special about it. And yet we, we did correctly. Unfortunately, in more recent times, we, we managed to lose to a, to a team of Welsh part-timers. But that's Kilmarnock. I mean, Kilmarnock are the type of team. You wouldn't bet to beat the worst team in the world. We'd probably struggle to beat them. But you play, you play a good team. Something, it's something to prove. That's when Kilmarnock seemed to come, to come to the floor. I think that's the beauty of football. It's an unexpected part of it that fans appreciate. A lovely story to tell about the Eintracht game and the gentleman who came into the game. By the time he got through the, the turnstiles at the admission, it was about four or five minutes into the game. So he shouts to his pal, the first person he sees, what's the score, what's the score? And he says, oh, the Germans are up one night. Oh, he says, I don't know, Steve, to watch this rubbish. So off he goes and misses this best performance ever from a Kilmarnock team. Friend of mine, he was a headmaster at a local Kilmarnock Academy. He couldn't manage the game that night. He was, I was teaching at night school. 
So he was running to the telephone every 10, 15 minutes to get the latest score. He said, I couldn't believe it, the way the score was going. It was one nothing to zero for goodness sake. One each. Oh, that's better. Two one. Three one. By the time he gets to three one, he's going, Oh, for goodness sake, my heart's beating ten to a dozen here. And then eventually gets to five one and he starts to talk and shouting. I think I don't know if that was me. I think at three one I'd have just chucked my job and I'd have been down rugby park. <laughs> I had a little chat with John Livingston, the, the club historian. The reason you missed the first game against Eintracht? Exams, sitting exams, trying to get through exams in the CA. <laughs> I, I gave up football, I think, when I was with St. Lynn. I, did, I, I gave up football for about six or nine months, just cramming and revising, getting to a state where I was good enough to pass the exam, which fortunately enough I did at the end of the day. Counting wasn't was my career, that was my, my chosen career. But football was a very nice aside, but it wasn't a side that sort the football always had to suffer. If something had to go, it had to be the football. And that's just the way it, it worked out. In many ways, I, I, would, I would have liked to have been a full-timer, although, having said that, any time, maybe in the school holidays, I used to go up to, to the park and train with the lads. But then after the training, you would go to the snooker club for a game of snooker. Or you might go to the bookies if you're a, I mean, I was a betting man, but there were other side of things that were less attractive to me. North of Calais, four minutes left for play. The game on aggregate, all tied up at four goals each. Murray, McAnally, Hamilton. Pulled down there. Referees awarded it. Just a foot or so outside the penalty area. It was a touch and go one. Looks as though Snedden may try a chip, or is it to be King? Snedden, a short one. And it's a goal! Honest, I would say I was maybe not lazy, but not the hardest working player. And I, I was never very good at training. I trained to a certain extent, but once you were around the track for the 19th or 20th time, I got a wee bit tired and a wee bit bored with it. I, I liked working with the ball. But if you're only there on a Tuesday or Thursday, you didn't really see the ball an awful lot. It was mainly conditioning, training, and sharpening. I was an intelligent player. I knew. I was a wee bit like Ali McCoy, so I knew where the ball was likely to be going. And I, I could always anticipate and get there before defenders. I was never the quickest of players, I would say. I wasn't slow, but I wasn't the quickest. 
Uh, but I always knew sometimes the first three or four yards in your pace determines whether you're going to get there before the centre half or a line half. So I was I was good at that, and uh, I had an eye for a goal. I could I could score goals from my, my height. I was only about five feet eight, five eight and a half. I was prodigiously good in the air. I, I used to think I was quite good in the air. I could I could get above people and head them into the net. Just when you're talking about maybe using your your brain, if if speed wasn't one of the assets and it was maybe more about using your brain, I was watching an interview with Jim Jeffries. He talked about the the challenge of playing against Kenny Dalglish, and he right. said that one of the things that Kenny Dalglish would do if he was coming up against one of the defenders is he'd maybe swing his arm into an area that might hurt <laughs> and then get a yard of space. You didn't do anything like that, did you? Well, there was a spell. I can remember Willie Wardle saying to me once about that was trying to establish a permanent place in the team. And he's basically saying to me, you can bloody play, you've got the other ability. You need, to, you need to be a harder worker. You need to be more physical. So for about a season or a season and a half, I kind of knocked into people. And unfortunately, because of maybe a few injuries sometime, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't the best tackler in the world. But I can remember one game we played against Celtic, and it was a it was a pretty robustious game. It was really nothing. Any time you played Celtic, it was hammer and tongue. Anyway, this was a League Cup game. I think we had to win to qualify. So, so I think we beat them two nothing. It was be flat that game. So the game got a wee bit difficult, and I tackled Bobby Murdoch to start the, the second half. It started, and that was a bit late and a bit early in the tackle. It wasn't the best of tackles. He got carried off with a broken ankle, and then about fifteen minutes after that, but this time. Celtic players, the steam's coming out of their ears, and uh, Billy McNeil tackled me from the back. I could, I could hear this noise approaching, and I realised something bad was about to happen. And Billy McNeil flashed past me, and I just managed to get out of the road at the last minute, and he cracked his ankle, he broke his ankle. He was out for six months. So that was the type of thing that happened at the time. And they called me, I remember Tommy Gamble called, called me, you're the wee, you're the wee hard man we're hearing all about, eh? You would be hard. <laughs> and I was saying, that's me. <laughs> so, but that was just, that was never natural game. It was never natural game. I was, I was a skilled footballer. But I did, I was physical for a, for a week. But I, I, I was the manager's instructions. <laughs> and then Mr. Waddle said, do it. He said, come on, get out there and do it. He didn't go saying, don't, don't, don't go and kick somebody. Just, just get involved. Don't, just thinking about your debut against St Mirren and maybe more generally breaking into the team, the, the youngest appearance maker, if that's the right turn of phrase, the youngest appearance maker for Kilmarnock. Uh-huh. How did you find, it's a very open-ended question, but how did you find actually coming into such a successful established team at such a young age? Oh, it was quite a thought. I think I think the good thing was that I didn't get too long to think about it because I think say we played when we were part time Tuesday and Thursdays were the training nights. So I remember going to the ground on Thursday night doing my training and then coming in to find out surprise, surprise, my name was up on the sheet for the team on the, the Saturday. I think the situation was it was maybe Andy Kerr was the, the regular centre forward at the time and maybe he was injured. But, but one of the main strikers was was, was doubtful. With some injury. So, I'm only too sure that I'd be playing or not on the Saturday. 
Vastan dot Nasata, my father's a scout for Kilmarnock. He brought me into the club and I was told I was playing. So, as I say, there wasn't too big a gap. I think if I found out on a Monday or a Tuesday that I was playing the Saturday, I might have been too excited and not done very well. The fact that it was such a short period of time was good. And I say, because my father was there, he was a good calming influence on me too. And I remember that particular day, it would have blown you away. I've never seen it. A game played in such horrendous windy conditions. It was an absolute deal. So we, we harnessed the wind in the first half and trotted into a 3 nothing lead, only to be caught in the second half. St. Martin took advantage of the weather. They got us back to three. And then by luck, I managed to head one in in the last five or ten minutes to win the game 4 3. So it was, a, it was a, a super, super memorable day. I remember the year we won the league, we played Airdrie at Broomfield and we lost the game 2-1, I think. The ground was so hard, wasn't it? I would say dangerous. Probably the game should have been played. But no, you, you can cope with that. You, the conditions are sort of but, uh, rain and snow, but wind, wind holds you back. Not, not good. As part-time player and a young player, you wouldn't have had much of a chance to impress the manager. How did you manage to force your way into, that, into the reckoning? Uh, well, I, I, in my, my younger days especially, I was quite a promising player, to tell me, I, I, I had a lot of talent. I, I, I played for a local uh, youth team called Saxon. My father worked in the local factory at Saxon and they had these wonderful grounds. So I had a team that was attached to the factory and uh, I played there for many years, scored a lot of goals. And I remember Moiro coming out to see me playing one night. I scored a goal for about 35 yards. So I, I just maintained that progress at Kilmarnock. I signed for Kilmarnock. I scored one or two goals in the reserves in my early days. And then the chance came to play in this big game. And I managed to score two, two goals in that, in, that, in that first game. So I, 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 it came quite natural to me scoring goals at the right time. So I guess the next question would have to be, you've come in, you've impressed, you've scored in your debut. And then I think you maybe played one more match on the back of that, and then it's a period out of the team. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was still very raw. As you say, I think I'm still the youngest player to play for the Kilmarnock. First team in 16 years and some of 40 odd years. They say if you're good enough, it doesn't matter what age you are. That's certainly true. But there are certain things that you don't know how to deal with, cope, cope with people, challenges, etc., etc. We have to run, we have to do this. And again, if you're part-time, you're not mixing with your full-time colleagues. So you're, you're not involved in any training processes and learning how the formations work and that type of thing. So it's a difficult if you're only meeting each other maybe once every week or fortnight uh, and playing a game. So it takes you years to learn the trade. And at that time, there were, there were a lot of good teams. I mean, the standard was very high. And I mean, I, I would say that nowadays, I think, and modern day players are much, much better than we were. I don't think the players now are as good as, as they were in, in, in my day. But in my day, if you're a young boy, you spent a lot of time kicking the ball against the garage door. That's how, that's how you learned your trade. You went out and had a game with the boys in the street or a, a game in the park. You don't tend to see that now. There's so many other things that, that kids get involved with and do. Andy Kerr moved on 1963. That's was right. it a case that you were hanging on for him to leave, or was it very much a case of biding your time anyway? Well, I think it's just a case of biding my time. I mean, I was never going to challenge Andy Kerr. 
Dominani Kerr was a prolific goal scorer. He, he scored some games, he scored three, four goals. He was a sort of lazy type of player too, so Dominani could have played forever. <laughs> never retired, so I don't think I was ever going to take over from him. But I say, fortunately or unfortunately, I think he, he, went, he went down to, where did he go? He went to the Sunderland, I think. He was a cl class act, Andy Kerr. He, he, he's a wonderful striker of a football. Hit, hit the ball beautifully. Usually when Andy hit the ball, the, the ball hit the net, it got a clatter. It was a nice goal. It was a nice clap. A good solid player. He played a lot of games for Scotland too. He played his country quite a few times. Very underrated player, Andy Kerr. But see, he was he was the main man at Kilmarnock at the time. But then, Kilmarnock, as I say, the well-controlled club, they get an offer of 26,000 or something like that. They sell him to Sunderland for money, and that was a lot of money these days. And probably Waddle felt he had the best year with Andy Kerr anyways, maybe coming to the last few years of his career. So there was no natural successor other than myself at the time. But I was always, I see, I was part-time, so I was never going to be the, the long-term answer to, to the, the team's desire to, to, to have a good centre forward. I don't think, I was trying to think who the other centre. Ernie Yatt, St. Hunter, I think Ernie was about at the time, but apart from that, Bertie Black was getting on in years. Bertie came in the, the last couple of games of the 64-5 season, played about four or five games over the season. But he was coming to the end of his career. He played occasionally at centre forward, but again, he was near. He was an out-and-out centre forward. He was more an old-fashioned inside forward. So I suppose that, that the man fell in me for two or three years, once again, to the team. In the 1960s, Kilmarnock continued its tradition of playing in exhibition tournaments in the USA. I asked Ronnie for his take on the experience. In a football sense, I mean, the crowds were not the greatest that Randall Island ever played these games at. But the, the quality of some of the teams you were playing, you were playing against, I think, the Ferenc Varus, played against West Ham. We beat West Ham, from memory. Oh, we beat West Ham. I mean, West Ham, you're talking about Bobby Moore time. Uh, who's it? Jeff, Jeff Hurst, what is Martin Peters? Very good players, but I say, put Kilmarnock in a game where they shouldn't have any chance, and that's when they go and win the game. And that's what happened over there. I think that the first couple of seasons we went to the New York tournaments, we actually, the first year I was involved in Kilmarnock at that time, but they got to the final, they played Bangu. Uh, even, even after that, we had a good spell, I think we qualified. Probably the last two that I went to America, that was our least our most disappointing performance, I think, when we finished second bottom. But it's the time of year, there's not a great deal of onus in the players to perform at their very best. You're in a foreign environment, the pitches weren't great. The Americans were just trying to get football kind of started, get, get it going. And I say, a, a crowd of some like 10, 15,000 in Randall Island Stadium, it just gets lost. So, not too much football, I would say, when you're in America. We spent most of our time in the shops and going to the cinema and various things like that. Well, I'm, I'm tempted to say you managed to find the time off uh, to go in the New York joint, though, didn't you? We managed to get in the plane. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know what age I was the first time we went to America. Fifth year, fifth year at school, maybe 16, 17. Going go, go to America, that was, you must be joking, but not, not. And I think the plane took us about 24 hours to get to America. The lovely parts of it, we went to the Casco Mountains. They were lovely in the north of New York from memory. That's a lovely thing. American people are very nice, very nice. Uh, I had some good times. 
In the 1970s, Ronnie returned to the club as a coach in fellow 65 legend Davy Sneddon's managerial team, an era defined by the part-time status of the club. In later years, under Ronnie's chairmanship, a rejuvenated Kilmarnock won the Scottish Cup in 1997. How did these two periods of the club's history compare? The 70s was a, was a difficult spell for Kilmarnock. David Sneddon was, was the part-time manager in my spell at Rugby Park in these days, and I was brought in as his, his assistant. It was difficult because I think, from memory, I don't think we had any full-time players at that particular time when we were involved. So we felt a, kind of a great sense of pride that we actually managed to stay up in the top league at the time, although we were part-time. A particularly good goalie called Alan McCulloch did a wonderful season for us that year. And the team played well. Paul Clark, big centre-half, an excellent player. So they did, they did their level best and we did well. We stayed up. Bobby Street scored a few goals, Ian Gibson. But the second year, I think, we ran into difficulties because a big goalie got injured, Alan McCulloch. He was out for about six months of that campaign. So we had a, a difficult season in the, se- in the second year, and I think we got relegated. At that time, there was not a great deal of money floating about in the club. In the 1990s, we still were in a wee bit of difficulty, because although we had Jim Moffat there with, with his money, and at that time, I think Jim basically financed the buy. We bought Paul Wright from St. Johnson for some £350,000. And I say that, that money came from Jim Moffat, and Jim paid another money to the club to keep it buoyant and, and heading in the right direction. But he had a spell as, as chairman before I took on the job as chairman. And Jim is a delightful man, but he, he wasn't probably cut out to be chairman of a football club. Uh, so he didn't particularly enjoy his spell in charge. So he had given it up. So that's why the, the vacancy arose. Somebody else had to do the job. And that was probably because of my long-term experience. I think I'd served as a director for about nine, nine or ten years overall. But probably a lack of choice, they chose me. But at that time, I think we were probably sitting on an overdraft of something that somewhere between 400,000 and a million pounds we were owing the bank. So the conditions were, 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 weren't great. But having said that, probably the one advantage we had at that time is we were back to kind of basis of full time players at Kilmarra. Under Bobby Fleeton's chairmanship, the, the club did extremely well and there were players brought in on a full-time basis under his brothers, Jim Fleeting was a manager. So they, they resurrected Kilmarnock to the great extent. Tommy Burns came at that time, he was very significant. So certain things had improved, uh, but it was still, it was a difficult job. I think when I took over as chairman, the club was sitting of its, in, the, in the bottom three. And one of the first things I had to do was uh, ask to see Alec Totten, the then present manager, and tell him that he was no longer required. And Bobby Williamson was put in charge temporarily as a reserve team coach to look after the thing. And fortunately for us, he did extremely well and eventually he got the job on a full time basis. But when the cup came up along that year and arrived, I think from memory, the first game was against Sterling. But a pretty average performance, we managed to skate through 2 0. And then the next round, who did we get? Yeah. Is it Clyde? I think we played Clyde away. Didn't play very well, but won one nothing. Then we played Morton. We played extremely well, won five two semi final. Dundee United, and they were the, they were the best team in Scotland at the time. So we were unlikely to beat them, but we, we did fortunately. 
gebied om een grote vijand en spoken. Ook het bieden zelf in de serie vijandselen. Fantastisch is al akkoord voor het bieden zelf. So it was a very open final. I think we deserved we won it. Very narrowly won nothing. And we, we made a lot of money at the, the final. As, as the winning, winning team, you get the, the lion's share of the money in the final. So I think we ended up with somewhere between six or seven hundred thousand pounds and paid to the club. So that just a bit cleared it, cleared the debts, got us back into the black. So it was a time the team was on the up and up a wee bit and we managed to survive in the Premier League that year, whatever they called it at that time. We, we, we drew, I think we drew Aberdeen in the last game of the season at the flat and we stayed up. So that was great. And then that, that got us back into Europe, obviously we're in the cup. And the club went progressively in an upward pan for about, I would say, three, four years after that. Uh, regularly in Europe and under Bobby Wilson. Fairly successful, good in the league, few of the crowds moved up. He brought in some really quality players, Pat and Evan, I remember. So the club went through a, a, a very good spell, I think. So it was quite different. 70s was a, was a hard grind, it was hard with them. Being a part time club and a full time centre is very, very difficult. You can't really survive for too long. So it was, it was like night and day. I'm interested in what your role became when you were working on the board of directors and in, and how much of an interest in the actual football side you took. So would you be in a position to say who you thought the best signing was? I recommended to the then management team that was the chairman, Bobby, Bobby Fleetner and Jim Fleeting, that they should go and speak to Tommy Burns. Uh, I, think, I think I'm right in claiming that. that it's maybe, maybe long-term memories going, maybe it was somebody else, but I'm sure, I'm sure it was me. I said to him, I think you should go and sign Tommy Burns. I think that was one of the best decisions I ever made at Kilmarnock because he was a wonderful ambassador for the club. And I know the difficulties when he eventually did move on to Celtic, but maybe it could have been handled better than both clubs. But they, no, he was a wonderful player and a, a great professional and very, very good at his job. He really got the best out of Kilmarnock when he was there too. He really did well. And he signed a lot of good players. So he was one of the best players. So he signed a lot of good players at the time. Ian Porteous, uh, John Swan. Who else did they sign? McCluskey for Celtic. He was, he, was, he was terrific. I mean, he was past his best at the time he signed for Kilmarnock. But he was a wonderful footballer. Uh, other players. Gus McPherson was a great player for Kilmarnock right back. But Skimming, he, he, he was excellent. Bobby Gerrish. Huh? A lot of good players. And that's something that's coming up quite a lot at the moment. I think there's a lot of fondness for that team from 19, kind of 1991, 2, 3. It was a kind of a rebirth of the club, wasn't it? Because the club came from way down at the bottom right, right through all the leagues, right through and promotion and my sustain of it. That, that's, that was a, a great thing. That's what I used to say to Jim Moffat. You're so lucky, you've, you've been involved with Kilmarnock, you've seen all the success, they've obliged to get a result against Hamilton back into the, the top league in football again, and we've won, we won the cup. I said, look, look Jim, we've won the cup. Fantastic. That's 60 years since we've won the cup. And I said, you're so lucky, you've been involved, you've been responsible for us. Youngest ever player, League Championship top scorer, coach, 
Director, Chairman. Ronnie Hamilton served Kilmarnock FC with distinction over a period of decades. It was wonderful to speak to him about some of his best moments. My thanks to him for giving me so much of his time. Later in the series, we will hear more from Ronnie on the great team of 1964-65. The Killy Histories podcast is only possible as a result of some fantastic contributions. The Kilmarnock FC Former Players Association and Paul Clark offer wonderful backing in securing such fantastic guests. Many thanks too to Kilmarnock FC historian John Livingston for his detailed research. The music, Clear Progress, by scottholmesmusic.com is used under free Creative Commons licence. I'm Gordon Gillen. See you next time. You know about the 70 or 80 games that I played in the first game? I think I scored about 56 goals. Overall, my career in football, I've always been able to put the ball on the net. So it was never a great problem. So given half the chance, come on with a very creative, good team. Didn't create a, a, a lot of chances because even the year we won the league, I mean, if you look back, I think from memory, Parks who were just put in the last day scored somewhere at 90, 93 or 94 goals. And we scored somewhere at 60. So we, we were about 20 or 30 less than them over the season. So when you break that down, I mean, every goal he scored was a very vital goal at the end of the day.